0: I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian.
1: I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And
0: you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety.
1: It's not there. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: broken. The scared noise is broken. <laughs> JJ lost her squeaker. <laughs> She's had an upper respiratory issue. Yeah. So the squeak is affected.
1: Today. Yeah, it okay. is a little bit. Well, that's all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh dear. Well, um, we have got a case for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so buckle up. <laughs> we're gonna dive right in.
1: Did now. we say who we were? Like, what the podcast? most well, surely people know. I don't know. Maybe we don't normally do that.
0: Oh, um, I'm just. So I practiced. usually say "Welcome to Introverts Podcast," and I didn't do that because I was laughing. I got sidetracked because of your <laughs> weird squeak. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVet's Podcast.
1: (laughs) I should go get a squeaky toy.
0: Okay. Yes. So, we have a case. Yes. And we're going to dive in. And as always, when we present cases on the podcast, we do so anonymously. That means that the veterinarian that saw the case and the patient, the pet owner, are all kept anonymous. And small details of the case have been changed to protect the identity of the patients.
1: All right. So case today is Gracie, a seven-year-old female spade pit bull mix. Uh, she presented for inappetence from a few days duration and weight loss. She has a history of a CCL surgery two years ago on the left leg. Right leg has a partial tear, but's not had any surgery. She's not putting that right leg down since last night, and her behavior is not normal for the owner. So it looks like they moved recently and she may be stressed due to that uh, and seems to be a little less active as well. The owner's in-laws reported that she had a seizure two nights ago and was non-responsive during the episode. She's had a seizure once while boarding a year or two ago as well. Hmm. She volunteered once last week and currently takes monthly trifixes.
0: Well, man, we got a lot uh, going on there in the presentation, don't we?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a cat. We're collecting stuff. <laughs>
0: okay. Well so normally you know we would start building our list of differentials right off the bat just from the case history but we got a, so much going on that I think what we need to do in this case is actually start with a problem list and mm-hmm. then go from there. So after taking the history our problem list would be uh decreased appetite, mm-hmm. the weight loss, uh lameness on the right rear limb with a history of the partial ACL tear in that leg. Uh we'll say ain't doing right, Mm. um, possibly (laughs) lethargic. And then we have this seizure history with a recent episode 48 hours ago, but then that one, like, one-off seizure thing a year ago during boarding. Mm -hmm. So who knows if that's related. Mm. Is the new seizure related to the old seizure? Is it a new problem? And is the new seizure related to the rest of the things are different?
1: We may never know. (laughs) Who
0: knows? (laughs) We're going to try to figure it out. And then we had the one episode of vomiting. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's quite a problem list. We don't really know how many of those things are related to one another. And this can be really difficult to tell, in part just because uh, we can't talk to the patient, Mm -hmm. you know. So we cannot get the dog's side of things, you know. Let's move on to the physical exam.
1: She was bright, alert, and responsive. Severe dental tartar and gingivitis. So we're non-weight bearing on that right rear. Pain score is one out of four, and body condition scores four out of nine.
0: So let's try to start building a differential list. I don't think we can be very specific about one yet. Mm-hmm. This is where I would come in and really question the owner to try to understand what symptoms have brought you in today, right? Is it that all of these are relatively new cluster of things? That means we can be relatively certain that they're all related. Or is it kind of like, you know, she always sort of chronically vomits. And so maybe that's not new, right? Maybe she always has intermittent lameness on the leg. So maybe that's not new, right? Mm -hmm. So I would try to to figure that out as best we can. So I would ask, what specifically prompted the visit today? What signs seem to be related and which signs seem to have developed separately? Sometimes owners have a strong opinion about this. I would never take an owner's word for it, like the gospel truth. Mm -hmm. But sometimes owners have a good intuition about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that discussion is just helpful when we're talking about testing. Because otherwise, our differential list right now looks sort of like this. Some type of GI illness with the appetite loss, the weight loss, and the vomiting. (laughs) Some type of neurologic problem because of the seizure history. And we don't know whether it's acute or chronic. Mm-hmm. And then some major orthopedic problem, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we have all of those broad, like everything in the world under those umbrellas. Or then we could start to think about like what would cause all of these things. And many of these are non-specific signs. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have like a mountain list.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. What do we
1: do? So what do you start with test-wise?
0: That's a great question. So I personally would start with a minimum database, right? We call it a minimum database for a reason. (laughs) That is the minimum amount of information that we really want to collect uh, diagnostically for a patient before we super dive in, right? So that can help us rule in and rule out some important differentials. And it can sometimes give us little flags about where else to look. So I would start there. As we've talked about before, a minimum database is a complete blood count, a full chemistry panel, including electrolytes, and a urinalysis. I'd also like to get some radiographs of the right rear limb since the patient is lame. This is often going to require sedation in a large and or strong dog, right? And we also want to repalpate that knee in in large, strong dogs, sometimes palpating a drawer sign. And checking for things like a meniscal click is difficult because they're like, ooh, don't touch my leg, you know. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to have them sedated to fully assess that. And I think before we consider sedation, I'd really like to know more about what's wrong with the patient, like on a metabolic level. Uh, so I would really want to do lab work first, even before proceeding to sedation and radiographs, because I just want to make sure nothing on the... Lab work makes me be like, ooh, <laughs> mm-hmm. let's not sedate this patient just yet, <laughs> exactly. you know, just in cases. Mm-hmm. So that that's truly what I would do. I would start with a minimum database and, and go from there. Now, that doesn't mean that if everything on the minimum database is normal, we, like, call it a day and be like, uh, dog's just fooling you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Dog is stressed out from the move and totally fine. We need to continue to work the case up, but it's the place to start. So, JJ, what mm-hmm. happened in this case?
1: Um, so basically with chemistry results, she was hypocalcemic. Hmm. No other abnormalities there. Okay. Uh, CBC nothing exciting. Thyroid was normal. Um, didn't have a sample available to do urine. Okay. So it looks like they were able to take radiographs of both stifles without sedation.
0: Oh, okay, that's impressive. Yeah, good yeah. dog. Okay.
1: Way to go. So the radiograph shows some signs of arthritic disease, including osteophytes in both stifles.
0: Okay.
1: The left side had a normal appearance considering the previous TPLO history.
0: So they were able to get radiographs. That's exciting. Yeah. It sounds like either they didn't feel anything different in the knee than had been there, or maybe they didn't evaluate it because she wasn't sedated. At least we don't really have that information. So moving forward, we're going to assume that that orthopedic evaluation was essentially unchanged from previous visits. The chemistry shows hypocalcemia. JJ, how low was the calcium?
1: It was 4.8 milligrams per deciliter.
0: Well, that's pretty low. Uh, Now, this on a regular chemistry profile, this is going to be a total calcium that we're looking at. For reference, you can start seeing clinical signs of hypocalcemia when the total calcium is less than 6. So this is way less than Mm 6. You said it was 4.8. You know, it's also intriguing because, you know how when I was saying, like, how, how do you know if all these symptoms are connected or all different problems? Well, weirdly, hypocalcemia can cause every single one of those problems <laughs> from our problem list. Okay.
1: Well, that's helpful.
0: Okay, so I mean, I think that the low calcium might—I mean, its it's might maybe real. It's plausible that this is all from hypocalcemia based on the clinical
1: signs. It quacks like a duck. It's, it does. It does. <laughs> So, what are those clinical signs that you can see with a low calcium?
0: Okay, well, quite a few. So, muscle tremors, fasciculations, cramping, or stiffness. Sometimes pets with low calcium will obsessively rub their face. You might see restlessness, aggression, hypersensitivity, or disorientation. Basically, they just ain't doing right.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? There you go. Check. Seizures. Check. Okay panting,
0: uh, anorexia, and lethargy, Check polyuria, polydipsia, low blood pressure. You might see either tachycardia, which is a high heart rate, or bradycardia, a low heart rate. And in kitty cats, you might see prolapsed third eyelids. Hmm. Then you will also see clinical signs related to whatever is creating the hypocalcemia in the first place, and, and those can be variable. Every single clinical sign that the owner has noticed is on this list.
1: about half the list.
0: Now, the dog doesn't have every clinical sign, Mm -hmm. but all of its (laughs) clinical signs do fit in this list. (laughs) So it's a little suspicious that this is, you know, what's going on. Okay.
1: All right. Well, let's discuss what can cause hypocalcemia.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, Man, all sorts of things. Okay. So we need to buckle up because this is going to be quite a list that we have to go through. So. Before we can talk about the types of things that create low calcium, we need to understand how the body maintains a normal calcium homeostasis just kicking around on an average day, okay? It's actually really impressive and complicated how the body does this. So (laughs) the body's calcium levels are maintained by a complex interaction between phosphorus, parathyroid hormone, vitamin D metabolites, calcitonin and the calcium levels themselves. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a minute. Calcium homeostasis also involves the intestinal tract, kidney, and bone. So multiple body systems, Mm -hmm. right? And because so many things are involved in the maintenance of the calcium level, we got a long list of things that can create the abnormal levels. So Number one, anything that creates redistribution of calcium in the body at all, okay? Mm-hmm. If you're not getting enough calcium or vitamin D in your diet, so like a nutritional deficiency, if you have hypoparathyroidism, that is a low parathyroid hormone, eclampsia, as you would see in uh, like a pregnant uh, person mm-hmm. or dog. Uh, maybe. We could probably rule that one out in this case.
1: Reminds me of... Uh... Dalton Abbey. Dalton Abbey. Yeah, very mm. uh,
0: Phosphate enema toxicity. So you get too many, <laughs> too many enemas. That's bad. I think mm. we probably ruled that one out in this case. Okay, mm. but still, uh, hypoalbuminemia can create and like an artificially lowered calcium level, and there is like a conversion and things like that that you can do. Pancreatitis, intestinal malabsorptive disorders. So you are getting enough of those nutrients in your diet, but you can't absorb them. Mm-hmm. Then we've got nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism, renal disease, sepsis, tumor lysis syndrome. That's if you have really bad cancer everywhere, and you start to like treat the cancer in some way, and all the cancer cells die all of a sudden, and uh, you get sick from all of the cancer cells basically releasing a bunch of shit into your body all, this, all at one time. In <sighs> you know, a layman's way of speaking it's more complicated than that but
1: there's rotting cancer
0: yeah exactly (laughs) ethylene glycol toxicity Mm -hmm. rhabdomyolysis that's where uh you know yeah you get overexertion uh then you get the you know coca-cola colored urine and it's the bad the bad news bears Mm -hmm. transfusions with citrated blood products Low magnesium levels can lead to hypocalcemia. We'll talk about why in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then laboratory error. <laughs> okay. We mm-hmm. never want to forget that one mm-hmm. because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you <laughs> that I have seen that a lot. <laughs> so, in, you know, in this case, we got a lot of symptoms. So I don't know. But, I mean, always we'll put it on the list.
1: All right. Well, that's a whole lot of stuff. So what do we do now?
0: You know, I think any time a patient comes in with a low calcium reading on lab work, it's wise to ask yourself whether we think it's real mm-hmm. or not. I would recheck a total calcium, okay? Now, some people might go straight to an ionized calcium reading, and that is not a wrong answer, right? Mm-hmm. The reason I often recheck total calcium, though, before I go to ionized calcium is because total calcium is not expensive and ionized calcium super is. Unless you happen to work in a facility that has some sort of really inexpensive point of care ionized calcium test. That's not common. But yeah.
1: it's, it's in also some places. Yeah. Difficult for a staff because that's a you have to be very careful how you draw it and yeah, yeah. take care of it before it gets sent out. So.
0: Yeah, when you send blood out to a reference lab for an calcium, you have to get a completely anaerobic blood draw, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have to make sure that the temperature of the sample is regulated at all times. And then you've got to ship it overnight on mm-hmm. ice. Um, and so, with everybody's different schedules, the lab—you know, whether or not you've got a lab courier, maybe you have to drive to you know, UPS and get it there by a certain time. Like it is a pain in the ass to Mm -hmm. do this type of test for most people. Now, there are some point-of-care tests. The one that I can think of off the top of my head, and this is not an endorsement, it's just one I'm familiar with, is the EPOC device. Mm -hmm. The EPOC does give you an ionized calcium without having to go through all that rigmarole we just talked about. And then if you're lucky enough to work at a place that's attached to a reference lab, like at a university teaching hospital, mm-hmm. um, then you have it right there. Like when we, you know, when we saw patients at Auburn University teaching hospital when I was in that school, we would get an S calcium back on everything. And it was so nice because then you didn't have to like go through all this <laughs> pain in the ass stuff. Okay. But the vast majority of the time in practice, like private practice, we're talking about sending a separate test out to the lab. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would recheck a total calcium first. Because a total calcium clip is very inexpensive to run on, like, an in-house machine and just check it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ionized calcium is going to be, like... JJ, what what do you think cupcake-wise?
1: 20 to 30.
0: 20 to 30. Okay. Somewhere in there. I'm
1: trying to do math in my head. <laughs> That's yeah. an easy math. It's, I,
0: I agree. I think it's a 20 to 30 cupcake type of test. Um, and if the owner only has that many cupcakes, then you have to Mm -hmm. really prioritize what you're running.
1: If the pet, like in this case, is showing a lot of signs, Mm -hmm. do you still check it?
0: Okay, well, that's a great question. I would probably try to get an ionized calcium ASAP on this dog if I at all possibly could. Mm -hmm. (sighs) (laughs) That's a tough one. You know, you're always at the mercy of what pet owners will allow, Mm -hmm. right? So in this patient, because the patient has so many clinical signs that are attributable to hypocalcemia, I think it's suspicious. So I might skip the total calcium recheck and go straight for the ionized if we can. And where I'm going to do that is, if, if like, say it was a Friday afternoon, right? Okay, Because it's going to be. But it super will be. Okay. <laughs> It'll be a Friday when you see that At like 4 p.m. So your mm-hmm. lab's already run, yeah, right? I was
1: thinking 4.30, but 4.30. Yes. <laughs> okay.
0: So your, your courier's run. UPS is closed. There's no way for you to send a sample out. That's generally when this type of thing would come up. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking reaching out to local ER hospitals, trying to get... An ionized calcium, maybe they have the point of care test. I'm thinking, I mean, I can't even think of another option. (laughs) I think this is what you have. I definitely have pulled blood for ionized calcium and and coags and stuff like that that I didn't have available in private practice and zip them over to our obliging local specialty hospital where they were able to run those for us in the Mm -hmm. middle of the day before. So sometimes you just have to think outside of the box a smidge, you know, to, to know what's going on. But Yeah, just I think it's a judgment call on that one. You just got to figure out what to do. Okay, definitely if the in house, like if you run another total calcium in house and it's still low, then we're like it's super ionized calcium time.
1: Let's pause for a moment to talk about ionized calcium versus total calcium and why that's an important distinction. Okay, so there are essentially three types of calcium in the body. There's ionized or free calcium, calcium that's in a complex with something else like phosphate, bicarbonate, sulfate, citrate, and lactate, and protein-bound. Ionized, or free calcium, is the biologically active form of calcium. However, it makes up only a little over 50% of the total calcium measurement. This is why we would want to check an ionized calcium. It essentially tells us whether the elevation in calcium is real or not. So the ionized calcium can be measured with a point-of-care testing using a variety of devices, However, there's some disagreement about how accurate those methods are.
0: You're right. You're right. So we mentioned that there is a point-of-care test, Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, you know, truly a reference lab would be (laughs) ideal, okay? Uh So if you're going to use a point-of-care test for measuring ionized calcium in house, the general recommendation would be for your hospital to test with that device a large number of normal animals and develop your own in-house reference interval. Mm. However, I have <laughs> literally seen zero places ever do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about your experience, JJ.
1: Yeah, I've never worked at a location that had one.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, <laughs> technically, look, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh, we do us calcium in-house all the time you guys need to talk with your uh, supervisors, your medical directors about doing this type of reference interval building for your hospital so that you can more easily know whether the results that you're getting are accurate.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. Um, So this is something that most hospitals are not aware of. So this is not something that you're bad or you know, naughty for anything, you just don't know. I didn't know until I re- was, I, didn't I literally did a literature review to look at this topic <laughs> up, right? So so there's some interesting data from 2020 that showed significant variation between portable analyzer and reference laboratory ionized calcium data, which prompted the authors to recommend establishing those in-house reference intervals for these types of devices. So this is new information. That's why you haven't heard it before. And of course, we'll put the reference for that study and everything else in the show notes and on social media, as always. OK, but if you want to go straight to that source, uh, the title is Comparison, Accuracy and Precision of Cage Side and Reference Laboratory Analyzers. And that was published in the European Veterinary Internal Medicine Companion Animal Conference Proceedings from 2020.
1: So, Greider, Mm-hmm. what do you do in this case?
0: You're saying if I could do whatever I wanted to in the entire world. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I had no limitations about like it being five o'clock on a Friday or the owner's finances or any bullshit. Okay. So
1: world is perfect.
0: The world is perfect. I would do whatever I wanted. I would first recheck the total calcium in house to see if I got any different results just in case. And then if I didn't, I would send out an ionized calcium and a total calcium to the reference lab along with a parathyroid level. We mentioned that hypoparathyroidism is one of the differential diagnoses for hypocalcemia, right? So like uh, it can create this state of hypocalcemia. Now, the reason that I would go ahead and send it out is that it's usually available in a handy dandy calcium profile from your reference lab, right? So Mm -hmm. if you order each test individually, it is going to cost you out the butt, right? Mm -hmm. But so (laughs) can I say that on the podcast?
1: I mean, we say fuck, so why not? Sure.
0: It's going to be very expensive (laughs) if you order those independently, okay? Mm -hmm. But if you order this profile, it's less expensive than ordering each test separate, okay?
1: You get discount.
0: Additionally, in order to appropriately assess the parathyroid hormone level, which you would have to do if the hypocalcemia is confirmed, you need paired calcium results with it. So if you waited to send out the parathyroid hormone, then your client is going to be paying for the calcium tests again, which they don't like. Right. So I always just tell people, trust me, long term, this is (laughs) going to be the least (laughs) expensive way. Now, some owners don't love this and they're just very like, we want to do one test at a time. And if they're like that, I'm like super great whatever you want it's your wallet yes here please sign this estimate where i showed you that it was going to be less expensive to do it the way i wanted and then you move on with your life and then i would institute some type of care in the meantime for this patient okay because if it's really 4.8 that's pretty low if there's not a cost issue i would hospitalize the patient overnight i mean in a monitored situation. Sometimes <laughs> when people say hospitalized, what they mean is
1: throw them in a cage and
0: leave. That's right. The, we're not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about 24-hour care. Someone is eyes on the dog all the time. You can supplement calcium orally and you could maybe do home monitoring. I mean, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. The pet is bright, alert, and responsive. It seems stable, but the numbers are a little bit scary looking. So I would transfer your patient overnight uh, to the ER to stay, to have their levels monitored. That way, if they have seizures, someone can intervene right away. And then if the owner declines that, the backup plan for me would be like supportive care with oral supplementation until until Mm -hmm. the results come back in.
1: Luckily, in this case, the patient's owner agreed to send out the full panel. Yes. Uh So while the panel was pending, the options of home monitoring with oral administration of calcium, like Tums. Tums.
0: Yes. Tums is a great example of an oral calcium Mm -hmm. supplement.
1: Was discussed versus sending the pet to the ER to be monitored overnight.
0: Okay.
1: The owners elected to be proactive and agreed to transfer to the ER for overnight monitoring. Beautiful. At the ER, they did have the ability to perform a point-of-care ionized calcium test, and it was low.
0: Ooh, it was low, so this is real.
1: Based on those results, the pet was treated with parenteral calcium gluconate and supported with fluid therapy overnight. In the morning, the serum calcium had normalized, and she was not experiencing any symptoms of hypocalcemia.
0: Fantastic. Man, that's awesome that she improved overnight. Sounds like that was definitely the right call was to send her to the ER. So what happened when those pending results from the reference lab came in?
1: The ionized calcium and total calcium are both confirmed to be low. Okay. The PTH was within the normal range at 1.2 picomoles per liter. The reference interval for this laboratory was 0.8 to 5.8.
0: Okay. This dog is trying to trick us, JJ. He's
1: trying to trick us a little bit. Naughty.
0: The PTH technically did come back in the normal range, right? Mm -hmm. Technically, it did. Here's a problem with that. The PTH should be high because mm-hmm. the dog's is hypocalcemic. Mm-hmm. And this is why you always assess a PTH with a paired calcium sample. There is PTH being produced, but the amount that's hanging out is like towards the bottom of the reference interval. That means that the PTH level is inadequate. And... this dog is going to have hypoparathyroidism. Mm. So we got our diagnosis like right off the bat. (laughs) Boom. Yep.
1: Okay. So this could easily be missed. Uh, If you're reviewing the charts and results in a hurry, uh, if you have a habit of just looking at whether something is normal, then you're going to miss the diagnosis on a case like this.
0: I agree. Yeah. So if you're just um, scrolling down really quick, maybe you've got a lot of crap going on. You have 30 you know, reports in your box and you're just like going through them, going through them or whatever, and you're just looking for greens and reds, you're Mm going to miss this diagnosis. So I need y'all to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Okay. But here's the good news. Most reference labs will put an alert on your lab sheets for this exact reason. And we'll be like, oh, Mm -hmm. so the endocrinologist uh, reviewed this and don't forget that (laughs) this is not, even though it's just technically <laughs> in the reference range, it's not normal in quotation marks, right? It's
1: like idiot lights in a car.
0: <sighs> well, look, always read the fine print, though, because sometimes they put them bitches at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Like down there at the bottom where it's like page, you know, one of one or whatever. And you're like, ah, oh, that part's probably not important. Sometimes I'll put it down there in like itty bitty. So, so instead <sighs>
1: of like, hello, it's like,
0: yeah, it's like" This needs to be in a nice twenty font,
1: you know, mm-hmm. like a bu- maybe a in bold. Red.
0: Well, yeah, in red. Yeah, sure. Put it in red. That's Same. great. Or you know, sometimes like people still are on fax machine for some damn reason, and uh, it won't come across red. But like, how about a bold? How about a how about a catchy font or like some asterisks or maybe even like an emoji, like a hmm, <laughs> you know, like a poop face, poop, or a
1: <laughs>
0: or those big eyes that just looked <laughs> that would be the ones that i would use as an endocrinologist just saying okay so just in case your lab does not give you this type of helpful interpretation though just remember that you always got to think about whether the numbers make sense not whether they're normal and that's not just with this that's with everything in life right mm-hmm don't just look at the greens and reds in life. you got to look at everything and make sure that it all makes sense mm-hmm. together. Okay.
1: Okay. So in our case, the results were reviewed by an endocrinologist. Yeah. Yeah, they were. <laughs> and they said, while this value is higher than most cases of primary hypoparathyroidism, it's still inappropriate and most likely consistent with a diagnosis of primary hypoparathyroidism. So we have our diagnosis. What does that mean? And what does the parathyroid normally do?
0: People get the parathyroid confused with the thyroid a lot. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna talk about, girl, we're gonna talk about the anatomy and everything. Okay. So, so cute. They
1: that they, beady, beady beady Sitting right on top of that thyroid. Dog.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> dogs and cats have four parathyroid glands. The glands lie alongside the thyroid glands. They are called the parathyroid glands for this reason. But not because they have anything at all to do with the thyroid function. They don't have anything to do with the thyroid function, okay? They're just hanging out close by Mm -hmm. like neighbors. The parathyroid gland is made of chief cells, which secrete parathyroid hormone or PTH. It is the job of PTH to regulate serum calcium levels. And in turn, the serum calcium levels regulate the PTH level. There is this negative feedback loop
1: circle of life.
0: (laughs) So PTH is secreted by the parathyroid gland in response to decreasing calcium levels. That PTH stimulates osteoclasts to break down bone and release calcium. It also decreases renal calcium excretion. So the kidney's not peeing calcium out as much. And it increases the kidney production of calcitriol, which is the active metabolite of vitamin D. Hang on here with me, okay? Mm -hmm. Calcitriol in turn increases serum ionized calcium by increasing the calcium absorption from the intestine. Mm -hmm. It also increases the renal tubular resorption of calcium. So again, not letting the kidney pee it out as much. And it stimulates bone resorption of calcium, and overall renal phosphorus excretion increases. The net result of PTH secretion is increased blood calcium and decreased blood phosphorus concentrations. Mm -hmm. So you see how that is complicated as shit? Yeah. Okay. PTH becomes turned off when calcium levels rise, and this interaction between calcium, phosphorus, PTH, and vitamin D occurs constantly at all times in your body. So basically, all of these things are at war with one another constantly to maintain this homeostasis. And if you have a break anywhere in the chain, it can fuck it up to some degree.
1: Sounds like monitoring a cat with heart issue <laughs> yeah. and kidney disease. and
0: Maybe a bonus uh, hyperthyroidism for uh-huh. fun. Yeah. <laughs> like this is, you know that meme I think it's from Always Sunny in Philadelphia where the guy's smoking and pointing at, like, a serial killer board with all of this red string connecting things. Mm -hmm. And people put, like, super complicated stuff. It'd be like this. Mm -hmm. This meme of the guy smoking with the serial killer board is what calcium homeostasis is like it's like (laughs) this does this and that undoes this but this does this more and then this undoes this and this does this again and so then the calcium goes up but then that turns off the whole process and you start again
1: my brain just thought of a very complicated roundabout and then i got anxious
0: well look this was (laughs) jj hates roundabouts Mm. like literal roundabouts that you go through in a car this description that we just went through of calcium homeostasis is a watered down version okay there are it it could be made much more complicated than even this okay but this is the this this is the basic situation that's happening
1: so when the ability to produce pth is inadequate the Uh body can't respond to low calcium levels like it normally would
0: that's correct
1: nutshell exactly
0: and that's why we would have expected to see higher PTH readings in this case, because mm-hmm. if calcium's low, the parathyroid should be making more PTH in response. But that response has been inadequate, so we know some bullshit has got to be going on with the parathyroid gland.
1: Somebody didn't yield in the roundabout <laughs>
0: and it was definitely the parathyroid gland <laughs> because if it, you know if there was another cause in the chain somewhere, we, we wouldn't be seeing this. Mm-hmm. So th- this, this inappropriate relationship between the PTH and the calcium is diagnostic. Like, this is the fucking problem. Helpful. It is. Yes.
1: So what causes hypoparathyroidism?
0: Okay. Well, first, let's talk about primary hypoparathyroidism because that's what we have going on in this case, most likely. Okay. Mm-hmm. But we'll also come back and touch on some of the other reasons that you can see it. Okay. So primary hypoparathyroidism is typically idiopathic in the dog. Hmm. We don't know why it happens is basically what that means. Idiopathic hypoparathyroidism is very rare in cats. You get diagnosed with idiopathic hypoparathyroidism when no other cause of hypoparathyroidism can be determined. Okay. <laughs> You know, when we look at biopsy samples from parathyroid glands in these types of cases, we see degeneration of chief cells and replacement by lymphocytes or fibrous connective tissue. So basically, they just gone. No more chief cells, right? They're just severely depleted. And so then that's why you're not getting the PTH release. There is a thought in at least some of these cases that it might be an immune-mediated disease, and that's because of the pattern of histologic change and the common presence of comorbid autoimmune diseases, and then also the reason because, like, some patients respond to immunosuppressive <laughs> medications, right? Mm-hmm. But there are some other causes, okay? Parathyroid agenesis. It just doesn't ever grow. Trauma. Trauma. Uh, You get hit by a car and suffer horrible trauma to the neck region, and it kills all of your parathyroid gland. I mean, that could happen, right? Mm -hmm. Neoplastic invasion. You got some stupid tumor up in there, and it just fucks them all up. Surgical destruction or accidental (laughs) removal. And the most common situation we see this is in thyroid surgery. So again, thyroid and parathyroid don't have anything to do with one another in the body except their neighbors. And parathyroid glands are fucking tiny. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a thyroidectomy, like hyperthyroid cats or like I had, Mm -hmm. it can either damage or uh, accidentally remove part of the, the parathyroid gland and that can lead to problems with calcium. In fact, after my surgery to have my entire thyroid removed, my calcium levels dropped, and they had to actually keep me in the hospital overnight, which they weren't planning to do. So, it uh, happens, uh, you know, even in, mm-hmm. even in human medicine, right? Yep. And then infection of the parathyroid gland might make it uh, so compromised that it doesn't function well. In cats, accidental surgical removal is uh, the most common cause of hypoparathyroidism. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also secondary hypoparathyroidism that we can see. Let's move off of primary for a second and kind of switch gears. We're going to talk about this, but this is not likely to be the situation in the case that we're talking about overall today. So secondary hypoparathyroidism. After you correct a long-standing high <laughs> calcium, okay, <laughs> so the calcium has been high for a long ass time, it might... Um, delay or inhibit the ability of the parathyroid to respond appropriately like the parathyroid's like i've been turned off for a long fucking time they probably don't need me and then all of a sudden you start like surprise bitch now your calcium's low and it's like what no uh, one told i was on the veranda you know with a martini no one told me that this was happening right
1: i'm atrophied
0: right it was like i have retired bitches okay <laughs> i have retired uh so yeah <laughs> sorry I'm just imagining the parathyroid gun, like, out smoking. You know a,
1: who's sitting next to that bitch? Who? The adrenal gland. The adrenal gland. <laughs> oh, no.
0: With the steroids. Mm-hmm. Yes, judge is correct. They so, have a
1: cocktail. Right.
0: <laughs> similar to how when you give exogenous steroid to a patient for a long time, and then you do a rug pull and yank the steroid away, and the adrenal gland is like, what the? F-? <laughs> I thought we were done. Y'all told me I, y'all didn't need me no more. Like, what is going on? <laughs> So, okay, back to, back to the situation at hand, secondary hypoparathyroidism. So, you uh, you correct a long-standing hypercalcemia, then it can take a little minute for the parathyroid to kick back on, okay? This is particularly, you know, common after tumor removal for anal sac adenocarcinoma or like lymphoma treatment where those cancers produce pthrp which is a protein that looks very similar to pth in the body so it plugs mm. in and it turns the machinery on and makes the calcium super high then you take the tumor away it's not secreting the abnormal protein anymore and the p- parathyroid is like what the fuck <laughs> again like i thought y'all had this like what the hell Somebody i thought y'all had this handle my
1: lawn chair out for, my that's right. for me
0: that's right that's some bullshit okay the other time that you can get a hypoparathyroidism is in dogs with low magnesium. So if you have like a protein losing enteropathy, and the dog has a hypo—I can't even say it—hypomagnesemia, <laughs> low magnesium. Okay. I've had to type that. So if you get low magnesium, if you get low magnesium from protein losing enteropathy, then that can create hypoparathyroidism. Okay. And then secondary hypoparathyroidism can obviously be transient because, you know, the machinery can kick back on for us.
1: So what kind of symptoms do we see with this?
0: Well, because the symptoms of hypoparathyroidism are usually caused by the low calcium that it creates, it's all the symptoms of hypocalcemia that we went uh, over above. With that hypocalcemia, there's an increased excitability of neuromuscular tissue We can get sudden onset of neurologic or neuromuscular signs as a result. Seizures are the most common reason for seeking veterinary care when you're having this issue. Other possibilities include muscle cramping, spasms, pain, twitching, tremors, fasciculations, or trembling, mental dullness and lethargy, agitation, aggressive behavior, facial or muzzle rubbing, and intense licking or chewing of the paws. You might see panting or drooling. The pet might be ataxic and circle, and then we might see weakness, anorexia, vomiting, diarrhea, or weight loss. Overall, the duration, magnitude, and rate of the decrease in calcium determines how bad the signs are. So in severe cases, those in which the total calcium drops suddenly to less than 4, death can result from hypotension, decreased myocardial contractility, and respiratory arrest because of respiratory muscle paralysis. Mm -hmm. So this can be like sudden onset really major bad times.
1: So we've talked a lot about hypocalcemia, but what other sorts of abnormalities are seen in these cases?
0: This can be pretty straightforward diagnostically. Besides hypocalcemia, the other major serum chemistry abnormality that we will see in these patients is hyperphosphatemia that's because of the, the pathophysiology that we talked about earlier. If it's one of those cases where a severe magnesium deficiency is creating the hypoparathyroidism, that will obviously be decreased. Assessing the magnesium is definitely recommended in these cases, just in case. And that's important to know because magnesium is not typically included in like screening lab profiles. Like it, I went and looked it up. It's not on like any of the common tests that you often see on in-house, mm. like that use rotors or clips. Mm. <laughs> okay, those types of tests, mm-hmm. I looked them up. They don't have the magnesium. And when I looked up some of the major common reference labs, it was available as an add-on, but not in any of the general screening profiles that I would see. Do you
1: have to do the senior panel type deal?
0: Well, even in like a quote senior panel from some of these, I didn't see magnesium listed. Huh. So, you might have to specifically look for it and add it on depending on what's available through your reference lab. So, as we've mentioned several times previously, it's the documentation of a low or normal parathyroid hormone concentration or PTH concentration in the face of a hypocalcemia that confirms the diagnosis of hypoparathyroidism. On ECG, hypocalcemia is going to create deep, wide T waves. A prolonged QT or ST interval and bradycardia, and that's really it. Usually, I feel like our um, our discussion of like what all we're looking for in lab work and what all diseases cause will be like, you know, thirty minutes or whatever. <laughs> that was pretty straightforward. Like mm-hmm. it, it is luckily like a straightforward diagnosis, but you just have to know to look for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, JJ. Yep. What about breed predisposition or other predisposing factors?
1: It can be seen in any dog um, of any age, and uh, it's been reported in dogs as young as six weeks of age. Overall, purebred dogs are affected more than mixed breeds. The most commonly affected breeds include toy poodles, Labrador Retrievers, Miniature Schnauzer, Driven Shepherd dogs, and Terrier breeds like the Jack Russell Terrier, and Scottish Terrier. Skull teeth. Yeah,
0: actually in vet school saw a Scottish Terrier with this condition. So that's interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. In one study, middle-aged female dogs were predisposed, but other studies have failed to show a sex predilection. You know, what about treatment?
0: Well, most of the time, both primary and secondary hypoparathyroidism are managed by controlling the calcium levels. Sometimes a fixable underlying issue can be found in those cases of secondary hypoparathyroidism, like, you know, like what we talked about. And in those cases, the treatment is just aimed at like correcting that underlying issue. Aggressive therapy is needed in cases with severe clinical signs or in those patients with severely low calcium levels, even if they don't yet have clinical signs. So if you've got like a calcium less than 4 in a dog that's just like, hey, hey I'm cool. Like, no, that dog, That don't send that dog home. Okay, like that's, that needs to be treated ASAP. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a smidge before about calcium supplementation, but I'm just going to go over that again real quick. We've got uh, oral or intravenous options for calcium supplementation. If we've got tetany or active seizures, that's going to need IV calcium. So, typically calcium gluconate because it is non-irritating if it becomes extravasated from the, like if it gets outside of the vein. Calcium chloride can be used IV, but it does create really severe irritation if extravasation occurs. Heart rate and ECG really must be monitored during calcium infusions. Okay, super importante. Made me nervous. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it, um, you know, like we just talked about, like it messes with the electrical impulses in the heart. Mm-hmm. So if you give it too fast or like in general, otherwise fuck it up, like then it's a real bad outcome potentially. After the acute period, if IV calcium is still necessary, you really need to do a CRI rather than intermittent boluses. So you can do that first bolus. But if you're like, ooh, this patient is still symptomatic, like it just put it on a CR I don't try to like give it Q however many hours now when you're giving calcium iv it's important to remember that you can't add any sort of calcium salt to fluids that contain lactate acetate bicarbonate or phosphates because you can get precipitation administration of subcutaneous fluids containing calcium has been recommended in the past But it's now avoided because of the possible side effects. And those include calcinosis cutis, pyogranulomatous dermatitis, dermoepidermal separation, skin ulceration, and severe pyogranulomatous paniculitis. I mean, it's been described, but like, try not to do that. (laughs) It's a hot mess. Yeah. (laughs) Oral calcium is what we use in the early maintenance period. And in patients with hypoparathyroidism from thyroid surgery, you want to keep calcium levels on the low end of the reference range, say like eight to nine and a half milligrams per deciliter, so that the remaining parathyroid glands can have the ability to kick back on. That's mm-hmm. really important. Now, the other medication that we're going to talk about is calcitriol. Uh, calcitriol, if you recall, is that vitamin D metabolite, Right. So lifelong therapy with vitamin D metabolites is necessary in every case of primary hypoparathyroidism and in cases in which postoperative hypocalcemia is not resolving. And calcitriol is the preferred metabolite because it has rapid onset of action compared to the other metabolites, and it has a short half-life. It's started as soon as the diagnosis of hypoparathyroidism is confirmed. The effect is enhanced intestinal calcium absorption, and this takes between one and five days to achieve. And during this period, oral calcium is used. But once calcitriol takes effect, the amount of calcium found in normal dog and cat diets is adequate, and calcium supplementation is generally tapered. Now, there is another vitamin D metabolite that you can use called ergocalciferol, Though it is less expensive than calcitriol, it's not recommended because you got to use really high doses, and the time to maximal effect can be as long as 21 days, Mm. and ain't nobody trying to mess with that. Mm -mm. And it also has a long half-life, so if you accidentally overdose the patient, it's going to create issues for a super long-ass time instead of calcitriol, where if you get your dose a little high, you can back off, and it'll regulate pretty quickly. The goal of therapy is to increase serum calcium to a point where no more clinical signs are seen and that we don't get overcorrection that leads to hypercalcemia because hypercalcemia long term is also bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we have one of those cases with a documented low magnesium, then you got to supplement magnesium. And then in, there's a potential future therapy that might be considered that I read about a little bit. So, when people, for example, have primary hypoparathyroidism, we just give them PTH. We just yeah. replace the PTH so that their parathyroid's not making. So, yeah. they get a sub Q injection with PTH and they're like, I'm solid. Sweet. Uh, but you said this product has not really been tried in animals because of the cost, mm. but it's a conceivable fix in pets, but we just haven't used it yet. So maybe one day in the future, this will be an option.
1: Maybe the cost will come down.
0: So uh, JJ, let's talk a little bit about monitoring when we're treating these guys for primary hypoparathyroidism.
1: Daily measurement of total serum calcium during initial therapy is necessary because hypo and hypercalcemia can occur sporadically. So weekly calcium measurement often suffices during adjustment of maintenance therapy until target level of calcium is achieved. Measurement of serum calcium is recommended every three months thereafter in animals with permanent hypoparathyroidism. The target level for serum calcium is ideally just below or at the low end of normal range. And this target lessens the likelihood that hypercalcimium will develop and reduces the risk of calcium loss to the urine that can occur with a complete absence of PTH. Vitamin D metabolites in oral calcium supplements are discontinued temporarily if hypercalcemia occurs. Hypercalcemia must be avoided because it can cause some serious consequences, such as acute renal uh, injury, chronic kidney disease, and that can result in death, which we do not want. So it's important to educate the owners of early signs of hypercalcemia and instruct them to seek veterinary care so that serum calcium levels can be measured Signs include polyuria, polydipsia, anorexia, vomiting, and depression. So what is the prognosis for hypoparathyroidism?
0: Patients who have really frequent episodes or a prolonged duration of hypercalcemia, so elevated calcium in response to treatment, have a poor prognosis. Mm. Um, but patients in which calcium levels are maintained in the target zone are often managed successfully for years. Good. Most dogs with hypoparathyroidism live more than 5 years with appropriate treatment.
1: That's good.
0: Proper management requires monitoring of serum calcium concentration every 1 to 3 months during the stabilization period as JJ mentioned. But you might have to do more frequent rechecks kind of just kind of depends on the dog, and more frequent rechecks have been associated with a lower risk of extreme low or high Uh, calcium developing, which obviously makes the pet more stable Mm long-term. And we do have some information about the treatment of people with hypoparathyroidism that might apply to dogs. Mm -hmm. Hypercalciuria, nephrocalcinosis, urolithiasis, and reduced renal function have been noted in people treated for chronic hypoparathyroidism. As many as 80% of humans treated for more than two years develop decreased creatinine clearance, so evidence of kidney disease. Mm -hmm. These abnormalities can be attributed to episodes of hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia, as well as that calcium loss through the urine. In the absence of PTH, calcium loss through the urine occurs more readily at all serum calcium concentrations and is most severe when calcium levels approach normal. These complications have been suspected in animals on a long term treatment for hypoparathyroidism, but risks of development have not been critically evaluated. So, JJ, what happened in this case?
1: So, they elected to do treatment with calcitriol. It was initiated, and at the two week recheck, the patient had normal calcium and had been seizure free. All right. Mm-hmm. They continued the calcitriol at a lifelong maintenance dose, and calcium was monitored regularly.
0: All right. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. That was such a great case. We received that case from another veterinarian, and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, she responded quickly to our call for cases earlier <laughs> in the year, and I've been sitting on it thinking, like, this is going to be a real good one. So yeah. we made it our last full-length episode of the season.
1: Thank you for submitting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. So as I just mentioned, this is the last full-length episode of the season. Now, we do have a really exciting snack-sized episode for you guys next week that's going to be about opportunities in veterinary medicine that are outside of general practice and what to do to get them, how to find them, how to get your resume ready, how to apply. We're basically just going to step outside of the box and look at all the other options that there are, mm-hmm. and then it's going to be Halloween extravaganza time.
1: I mean, it's already spooky
0: season. No, I know it's deep into spooky season. You know
1: what's coming out tomorrow? Hocus pocus? No, my <gasps> Halloween decoration.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the the you know the uh, hocus pocus 2 is mm-hmm. coming out literally actually it might be out today maybe in real life if you're listening to this podcast it came out a hot minute ago okay but in real life it is the last day of september mm-hmm.
1: right yeah today's
0: 30 tomorrow is the first day of october in real life here in the podcasting studio and i am ready mm-hmm. i got my pumpkins ready i got my halloween doormat ready i got my wreath ready
1: it's time it is time <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i'm working on a very exciting clinical case to tell you guys about for halloween
1: Uh-oh.
0: Hi. Oh. <laughs> oh lord <laughs> so if you have questions cases stories or anything else you'd like for us to read please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com.
1: you can find us on social media or on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. TikTok. Oh, Lord. And on TikTok. <laughs> and on TikTok. And it's... At introvets. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time.
1: Bye-bye. Bye.